Well, hey, everybody. Hopefully you're well. Thanks for being with us again. I think we've said uh, the last couple of months, you know, our vision uh, is to kind of move towards being this hybrid community. And so the first Sunday of every month, um, we are not gathering all together in one space at Goodwill, but looking really to spread out in Praxis communities and as well have our gathering either in Praxis communities where you can engage the content or online for some of you that just want to watch from home or whatever. And just trying to create space where we're wrestling you know, through our themes and giving opportunity to really turn our lives in towards each other and kind of live this out. Not that there's not room for that on Sundays at our, our Sunday gatherings, but this just takes it a little deeper as communities and groups eat together, share life together, and hopefully come around some of these ideas. And if you know, since the beginning of the year, we've been in this letter uh, that Paul wrote, this guy named Paul, called Galatians, and just wrestling through the key themes, what it says, what it means for us. Uh, the very first week of the series, we had a, a great guy, for, I hopefully in some ways can call a friend or a, a budding friend, getting to know a David Harvey from Westside King's Church in Calgary. And then he was with us last month as well. So what we're doing is taking these first of the months um, just to kind of, it's almost like bonus episode style where instead of continuing to walk exegetically or like line by line or chapter by chapter, we're just taking a, a little pause on that and looking at a bigger theme that we think would help lead our community. So in a couple minutes, we're going to have you guys discuss and take time to just wrestle through what we're talking about. David, it's great to have you back here with us. So, so thankful to have all the work that you've done for us, not only in the introduction, but as well as last month. Um, you alluded to this in the introduction and I thought this would be a really good discussion point for our community around the stratified ideas in the first century Paul is pushing against this and in particular this idea of status mm -hmm. which it seems like and you even alluded to male you said I think in the introduction the male and female piece mm -hmm. you're like I wish I had more time yes um, yes Let's take a couple minutes just around what Paul is getting at here, just around status. What does this mean for us in our moments? What does yes. this speak to us? Well, yeah, it's. I feel like I, whenever I talk about Galatians, uh, Drew, I'm always like, oh, I wish I had more time. So I apologize for, sure. uh, for no. that. Paul's world was highly obsessed with status. Um, so like in the ancient world, they were convinced that people who had achieved particular things, had a particular reputation, uh, you know, achieved particular honorable behavior, they believed that those people were somehow worth more than other people. I, I don't know if we can relate to that in any way at all. Right. You know, um, uh, so like I always find myself laughing when I say, you know, in the ancient world, people were obsessed with status, right? You know, <laughs> <laughs> unlike us. <laughs> right. Um, None of us struggle with this. Yeah, no, and of course, the ancient world, they were interested in different things than we are interested in. But the, but the basic premise that this quest, what in the ancient world they would call the quest for honor, you know, the quest to be honored and be honorable were were really strong driving features for people. But that is still true. It's almost a it's almost the basic, you know, human behavior. Like from Genesis onwards, you know, that is the human problem, right? Uh, you know, what is it that what is it the in in the in the story of Genesis, you know, the beginnings in Eden, you know, you could be like God. That's it's what draws us, the roots of 
all of our sin at some level is this idolatry towards, well, I can be better, right? And I can be right. up there. Um, so what's really interesting is in Galatians, Galatians is about 100 and, uh, you know, 146 verses long. Um, and I'm going to like have nightmares about that afterwards because I'm going to remember it's 145. So let's say it's 145 <laughs> or 146 verses long. It's not very long. You can read it in uh, about 20 minutes. Um, so therefore, I think it's always worth saying that there's very little said in Galatians, which is wasted, right? So, so Paul comes in and he says, hey, listen, I'm an apostle. My apostleship comes not from humans, but from God. By verse 10, just notice this comment in chapter 1 and verse 10 that Paul says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Uh, a Christodoulos in, in Greek actually would not be a slave of Christ. So a very, very strong, strong language here. Just think about what Paul said there. Am I trying to win the approval of humans? Now, it's only 10 verses in, but if you read Galatians 1, verse 1 to 9, you realize yeah, he's definitely not trying to win any friends uh, the way he's right. talking. Um, <laughs> am I trying to win the approval of humans? Am I trying to please people? And then he draws a contrast for us. The, the, the pleasing of people and the serving of Jesus are going to be opposed to each other in some ways. The, am I trying to win the approval? The quest for status amongst humanity will somehow be opposed to Paul's quest for belonging to God. And notice the approval of people versus the slavery of Christ. He takes two things, one which is very low. You know, slavery in his context would be the, the lowest rung of society. So am I going to seek approval from people or am I going to be a slave from Christ? I think of the psalm, you know, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. Paul, Paul is doing something there. And what he's setting up, it's a verse you read over without any attention whatsoever, but he's setting up I would say, a deconstruction of our ideas of status, right? The next thing he's going to jump into, just as a point of interest, is a discussion that leads him to talk about Jesus being crucified. Crucifixion was, I often say this to people, and um, they, we'll go off on a small tangent here, Drew, for a second, but, but I often used to say, say to people, you know, what was crucifixion for? And, and it'd be really interesting if you're, if you're with us just now, What's the first thought that comes to your mind when when I say, hey, what is crucifixion for? Because most people go, oh, it was to kill people, right? But actually, that's not true. Crucifixion is, I hope, this, I'll keep this as, as PG as I can, but, but crucifixion was not designed to kill people. It was designed to cause people to suffer a lot while they died. Right? The Romans were very good at killing people. Crucifixion was not a very good way to kill people. Actually, it kept you alive for a very long time. What crucifixion did was it shamed you. Right? Uh, and it, it destroyed your social standing. Right? Um, right. Brief, brief aside for a second. Um, Paul uh, calls us in Galatians chapter 5, he calls us to crucify the flesh and its passions and desires. It's really interesting that he chooses the language of crucifixion for our destructive passions and desires. He doesn't say kill them, right? Crucifixion is a place where you let something die, right? Now, the interesting thing about crucifixion, we've gotten off track here, but I hope this is helpful. The interesting thing about crucifixion is when someone's being crucified, they're in a lot of pain and they're struggling and they're dehydrating in the sun. So what feels like a really nice thing to do is give them something to drink, right? Um, because that will kind of take away the pain of the dehydration. The problem is when you give someone being crucified something to drink, 
It actually just keeps them alive for longer, right? So therefore, it just it, it prolongs their suffering. I think it's fascinating that Paul says, "Crucify the flesh with its sins and desires." He's like, he's like all that stuff that's broken and evil in your life. He's like, let it die. Like, stop hydrating it. Stop giving it something to, you know, to to keep it going. Just just let it go, right? Um, but anyway, so back on track. <laughs> Little free extra there for us. <laughs> but um, you know, back on track. Paul says that Jesus is crucified. So am I trying to win the approval of humans or I'm a slave of Christ? So high status, low status. Then he's going to talk about a Jesus who, you know, who basically was crucified, the lowest rung of things. So that's going to happen at the end of chapter 2. So verse 10 of chapter 1, am I a slave of Christ? Am I winning the approval of humans? Then notice he jumps from there into a little bit of autobiography, wherein he says... um, you know what? You've heard of my previous way in Jerusalem, how I persecuted the church. I was advancing beyond all of my peers and was extremely zealous. He sets himself up as, you know, I had it all together. But you read this story through and you, and you get to it and you find yourself in chapter two. I'm, I'm just building a picture for you here that I, of the verses I want you to notice. In chapter two, Paul finds himself in conversation with Titus. Um, sorry, where Titus is with him while he's in conversation with James, Peter and John. Right, um, and James, Peter, and John are considered the kind of leaders of the church in Je- church in Jerusalem at this point. Therefore, leaders of the church. But Paul says this in verse six of chapter two. He says, "As for those who were held in high esteem, right? So think about this language again, language of status." He says, but then he says this: "As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they are, makes no difference to me." And then he channels a piece of Old Testament and says this: "God." does not show favoritism. Uh, the actual Greek language that Paul uses talks about that God doesn't take face, and face was the seat of honor. But Paul, says, Paul says, God does not show favoritism. So am I trying to win the approval of people or am I a slave of Christ? Or in my previous life, I had good status. But now Paul makes this confession, God basically isn't interested in human status. That is exact, that's essentially what Paul is saying right here. I think that becomes really important to us because this whole argument in Galatians is rotating around, do you have the right status with God or not? Paul's like, what human status can put you in the right standing with God? There is none. There is only Jesus. And the crucified Jesus, who had the least status-improving thing ever happened to him, he took the cross. Um, and, you know, Hebrews talks about how Jesus despised the shame of the cross, right? Uh, Jesus basically takes the lowest rung of the social ladder and saves the world via that. Paul's like, so we're going to follow the shamed Jesus, and then we're going to care about status? And then, to make it even more ridiculous, Paul says, is we're going to care about status in front of a God who doesn't care about status, Right? And all of that sort of leads us up to this kind of um, this kind of conversation that we get into in chapter, um, you know, in in chapter three, right? Because what happens in chapter three is he now, and we talked a little bit about this in the introduction. I I don't know if people can go back and and watch that again in in their own time, but but when you go back to in, into chapter three, he builds up to this point in verse twenty six, twenty seven, and twenty eight where he says, you're all children of God through trust, not by your status, not by what you've done, but you're children of God through trusting in Jesus. We're baptized into Jesus and we're clothed in Jesus. And then in this kind of, some people have called this like the Magna Carta of um, of Galatians, but he has this moment where he says, there is neither 
Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free, and nor, nor is there male and female. Paul takes these three big categories of his time and essentially neutralizes them and says these are not categories that give you status with God. They're therefore leveled out and of no interest. And now there is some stories out there and there's some sort of evidence that it's possible around the time of Paul, this definitely was a saying afterwards, but around the time of Paul there was definitely a saying that certain Jewish men would would daily pray the prayer that I thank God that I'm neither a Gentile nor a slave nor a woman. And 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 Paul now comes along and says, actually, those things don't don't matter as much as you think they matter. They may have social implications in your wider life, but they don't have implications in the church. They don't have status in and amongst the people of God. Now, what's really interesting here is Paul's language in verse 28. I'd love for people, look at your Bible and notice how he breaks up the story. He says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, or Jew or Greek, depending on how it's uh, how it's translated in your Bible. He says there's neither slave nor free. But then the final couplet, he says, there's neither male and female. So why does he change from a Jew or and a slave or to a male and female? What's really interesting is that the use of the word male and female is quite unusual in Paul's Greek here. But Many scholars have begun to notice that the language that Paul uses when he says male and female is actually a direct connection to the exact same language uh, in the Greek of Genesis chapter 1, in the Greek translation that Paul would have used. And it says God made them male and female, right? Why am I making such a big deal about this? Well, because I think Paul is actually channeling Genesis 1 chapter 23 at this point, right? And what he's doing is this. He's actually saying, let me say it a different way around like this, Drew, actually, here. Let me, let me do it like this. So I've heard the argument sometimes that people go, okay, it's fair enough that ethnic divides can be neutralized in Christ. It's fair, you know, like Jew and Gentile. It's fair enough. And generally speaking, those of us from a Gentile persuasion are quite happy to support that Christians don't need circumcised, right? You know, we're quite happy to get behind that that ruling. Then we talk about slave and free. Well, slavery is clearly bad, so we're very happy that, that that would be liberated and released. But then you hear this little line, but male and female, they are cr- separations that were made in creation. They, therefore, they must remain, right? And what that is often used then is to leverage not a conversation about whether men and women are different, but whether or not they can have equal status. In a lot of churches, historically, we get to the point we say, well, no, no, women cannot have equal status because God made men first and women second. But Paul says, neither male and female, alluding to Genesis 1.27. Why is that significant? Well, here's what I think Paul is saying to us here. Paul's saying that in Christ Jesus, your ethnic status, Jew and Gentile, doesn't count for anything anymore. Your social status, slave or free, doesn't count for anything anymore. Oh, and by the way, also, your created status doesn't count for anything anymore. So, So Paul actually takes the way the world is made, and says Jesus supersedes even that, right? So so you can't now oppose somebody on the basis of just the fact that they happen to be a woman and you happen to be a man, right? That Paul is basically saying, in Christ, it's new creation. Now, that might sound familiar language to us, right? All of this other stuff is part of the present age, 
which Paul defines as evil. So he's so brave to say the impact of Jesus even changes the very created order of the world. So, So somebody comes along and says, well, in Genesis, I think women are made inferior to men. I think Paul might even say this. Yep, that might even be true, but that doesn't matter because we're not in Genesis anymore, Dorothy. You know, we're, <laughs> we're, we've left Kansas and Eden. We're now in Christ, right? And, and we're in Christ, and in Christ, all created categories are neutralized, right? Um, and again, what he doesn't say then is that all the women now have to act like men or all the men have to act like women. What he says is we need to change our thinking to get away from the notion that men or women somehow have different superiority in Christ. We are all one in Jesus. And because we're all one in Jesus, we're all heirs to the promise. So, But you can actually see once you get to that, that might sound controversial, except that the way I've hopefully tracked it for you He's been kind of hinting at it throughout the whole letter, just needling away at. Well, and even if you don't accept my argument, we know that even the Old Testament, Paul's saying, tells us God doesn't show favoritism. So, so how could we then, as, as followers of Jesus, try to reapply status differentials? How could we actually begin to say, well, that person's different from this person, therefore, um, you know, this person's better than that person? By the time you get to chapter 5, by the way, Paul says this, um, if you get let yourselves be circumcised, so let me, this is working as a metaphor now for us, okay, for us in the present day. Paul's saying, if you let yourself be circumcised, what Paul means is if you let yourself be defined by a particular human status, right? So just think about that. Look at how he ends the sentence in chapter 5, verse 2. Christ will be of no value to you at all. If we as Jesus followers say that somehow one particular type of person has superiority over another type of person, Paul is basically saying we have lost track of following Jesus. You know, um, And the fact that he builds the whole argument around Jew versus Gentile, and then at chapter 3 throws in slave and free and male and female, that the basic inverse logic is if, and I say this really clearly because um, this is me not stating my own beliefs, right? but if men are superior to women in the church, then men also need to be circumcised. right? Because the, what Paul does is he ties the two logics together. And he, if this doesn't count, that doesn't count either. And far too often in my experience of church life, we're very happy to move on from Jewish ceremonial laws, but we've tried to reaffirm sort of the way that the world works around issues of gender or issues of social status. And Galatians wants to get rid of all of that. Oh, man, so good. Um, so much to chew on, but probably more than chew on, <laughs> a lot to just discuss. And we want to create a space for that. Uh, David, thanks for being with us, man, and it's just cultivating this. What do you think? There's going to be some, uh, for those of you at home that are watching, there'll be a slide that comes up. And as well for our groups to kind of uh, get our groups thinking. So there's going to be some questions that come here around this, around status, around what Paul is doing, and around giving you opportunity to share what you think and what you're wrestling through in your own life and in our community. Um, we have a month left in the letter of Galatians over the month here. And we'll actually end uh, the first week, uh, first Sunday of April, where we're going to kind of land the plane and take a few minutes in our communities to land the plane. But um, I think there's lots 
to discuss and lots even just to, to as we listen to each other just open up a place and space to do that so david thanks again for being with us brothers and sisters have an amazing week and uh, we're going to give you an opportunity to uh, dive in